When I began to be trained to be uh, to preach the word, that was over 20 years ago now, and we didn't have um, the PowerPoint and all the uh, media presentation and things like that. So my my first preference, and it's hard to believe because uh, some of you who know me. Um, and what I like to do with computers, know that I'm fairly into the technology. But when it comes to preaching, I am pretty low-tech guy in my preferences. And so this morning we're not going to use the uh, PowerPoint. And this is when I'm right at home. There's another reason why I like it when I don't use the, uh, the PowerPoint. is because I get you looking down at your Bibles and paying attention to the words in your Bible, and hopefully some of you are against this because it just doesn't feel right, but many of you, you're going to be making marks in your Bibles and things like that, and I encourage you to annotate, um, ask questions in the margin, highlight things, something that stands out to you, put a date there, and do that. Um, It's also going to be pretty important this morning because we're going to look, um, we're going to glance over the whole book of Mark here in a few minutes, just to make a point. This week, um, actually it was Friday night, um, I wanted to have a conversation with our fam- my family about what we're going to study today. And I wanted to hear my wife's response, I wanted to hear my children's response, and it was a really good conversation. And it really just um, confirmed to me the need for us as a church to, if you will, have this conversation and look at um, this text. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11, and we're going to be in verses 15 through 19. The title today of the sermon is a question. Should Christians use violence for the cause of Christ. I think I know how most of you would answer, but in some ways it's surprising that there could be some variety of answers on this, and I've even heard a variety of answers over the last few years. I'm not going to answer that yet, even if I know, I'm pretty sure I know how many of you would answer this. So let's look at Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 15, and I'm going to comment as we go down through it. And they came to Jerusalem. That's Jesus and his company. They came to Jerusalem. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. So to drive people out is a very aggressive action. And we're going to see what those aggressive actions look like next. And Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers. He flipped over tables. People were there at the tables trying to sell, make transactions, and he went over and he flipped it over. Something that was very unexpected by those folks. And this uh, mentions the money changers. So a money changer 
I think you might know what we're talking about here, but just in case you don't, um, during this time, during Passover time, there were people coming from all kinds of different countries. So they had different currency. And in order to make purchases, they needed to have the local currency to make the purchases of those who like sold pigeons and things for sacrifices. And so these money changers were there to exchange the currency. If you were to go over into Canada or especially overseas, you probably would want to exchange your American dollars for the local currency to make the purchases that you needed while you were there. And so that's what these folks were doing. So Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And so he took the chairs and he was flipping them over and driving people out of them and getting them out of the area. And Jesus, verse 16, would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Many scholars describe that this area of the temple ended up being a shortcut as people were heading from one area of town to the other. That's something that's hard for us to visualize, um, but I want to try to help us visualize this. This area where these uh, merchants were set up in the temple was called the Court of the Gentiles. And I was going to print out a diagram this morning, but I forgot, so you could see it. But the court of the Gentiles was a large area of the temple complex. Um, as you think of this as what's called Herod's temple, it was at least twice as big as Solomon's temple. So if you can visualize anything about Solomon's temple as you've read your Old Testament, the court of Herod or the temple of Herod is much, much larger. So you can imagine perhaps the farm field out here behind the church where some years they corn plant beans, some years they plant corn. There, That area is a large area. So you can imagine probably the majority of that field set up with tables and chairs and merchants, and that would be around the size of the court of the Gentiles. A very large area. And lots of commerce happening. It ends up being a very loud and busy place. And this was what was called the court of the Gentiles, the outer area of the temple. And that was where the Gentiles were allowed to come and pray and experience God's presence. Whereas the Jews could go further into the temple and enjoy God's presence there. So they were only allowed so far into the temple. And so the area where the rest of the world, besides the Jewish people, was allowed to go and pray and experience God's presence was cluttered up with commerce. And then it goes on in verse 17. And Jesus was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written? There is a, this is a key to you, a cue to you that Jesus is quoting now from the Old Testament. And he's going to quote from Isaiah. It says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Jesus is saying, is it not written? And in this case, from Isaiah. And then he transitions, as Jesus does multiple times, and other of the New Testament writers do this, and they combine Old Testament quotes all into one um, quote. 
And now Jesus transitions to Isaiah or to Jeremiah. And he says, but you have made it a den of robbers. So here Jesus is saying, this is supposed to be a place of prayer, but you have made it a haven, a place for dishonest gain. So this is pretty shocking. A place where people can be dishonest and take advantage of others. It's also a noisy place. It's not a good place for prayer. Not a good place for people to come and experience God's presence anymore. Okay, verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Just a reminder, just a few verses earlier, we have the triumphal entry. So this is the Holy Week when Jesus cleansed the temple. So after we just read Jesus's, of Jesus' actions, I want to raise the question again. Should Christians use violence for the cause of Christ? We just saw that Jesus used violent actions. My wife was just honest with me. She says, I don't like that passage. Because we we see violence in Jesus doing that. Perhaps some of you, as you have listened to the news or read articles, especially in all the turmoil in our country in the last several years, Perhaps some of you, as I have, have read articles or heard people explaining or justifying violence and aggressive actions by Christian people, and they cite a passage like this, where Jesus was violent. So my question is, as we like to teach that we should follow Jesus' example. We do this over and over again. Should we follow Jesus' example here? If we are to follow Jesus' example here, how are we to do it? And when? If we are not supposed to follow Jesus' example then what are we supposed to learn from a passage like this? How does it help us today? And then my final question is, how does a Bible text like this fit into the overall theme of the good news of Jesus Christ? These are really important questions, and I hope this morning that you will get answers and you will actually take comfort from these answers. Let's pray. As we dive in, Lord Jesus, and we consider your actions and how they apply to us, Spirit of God, illuminate our hearts, show us what we need to learn Give us hope and comfort. In Jesus, it's in your name we pray. This is your church.
Amen. Number one, I put blanks on the handout this morning um, because I did not. I wanted to lead you through this, and I did not want to give away anything, and so I put blanks on the handout. I will try to make the uh, the blanks clear as I go through. Um, but if you miss something, just come talk to me afterward, and we'll we'll get that taken care of. So number one. As we're trying to answer this question, should Christians use violence for the cause of Christ? Number one, what conclusions can we draw about Jesus performing violent actions during his first coming? So the three blanks there, the first one is conclusions, second one is draw, third one is about. <coughs> and here is where we need to take a survey of the book of Mark. I wish we could do more than the book of Mark, but we're going to just do the book of Mark because that's where we are in our sermon series. So keep your finger here. In Mark chapter 11, but flip over to Mark chapter 1. And what we're going to do is we're just going to look. I'm going to be reading the the headings in my ESV translation of the different paragraphs. And I want you, as I'm reading these headings, to try to visualize was Jesus violent or aggressive in these passages. Okay? And so you're going to have to go off of what you already know about these passages because we can't go into each one. But I hear the first paragraph heading, John the Baptist prepares the way. So it's preparing the way about Jesus. And then we have the baptism of Jesus. And next I have the temptation of Jesus. And then Jesus begins his ministry. Jesus calls the first disciples. Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit. And in this passage, there's a little bit of a scrape going on, but nothing too aggressive going on. Next, Jesus heals many. Jesus preaches in Galilee. Jesus cleanses a leper. Chapter 2. Jesus heals a paralytic. And there's a little bit of an intense atmosphere as he interacts in this passage. Next, Jesus calls Levi. Next, a question about fasting. There's a little bit of an intensity here once again as Jesus is questioned. Next, More intensity, just a little bit though. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Chapter 3. A man with a withered hand. And if you remember this, you feel some intensity here as Jesus looks around in anger. Next. A great crowd follows Jesus. 
the twelve apostles, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the parable of the sower, And we're into chapter 4 now. The purpose of the parables. A lamp under a basket. The parable of the seed growing. The parable of the mustard seed. Jesus calms a storm. This was a very intense situation. But Jesus does not. He does not use aggressive speech. In this intense situation. Chapter 5. Jesus heals a man with a demon. Jesus heals a woman and Jairus' daughter. Chapter 6. Jesus rejected at Nazareth. Jesus sends out the twelve apostles. The death of John the Baptist. And even in the midst of this sad news and the aggression and the murder of John the Baptist, we see Jesus moving on to care for others in the feeding of the 5,000. That's the context. It's the hearing the news of the death of John the Baptist, the murder of John the Baptist, and still Jesus is caring for the thousands. Following that, Jesus walks on water. And the intensity felt was the conviction of by the disciples because of their unbelief. And Jesus questions them, but he is still very gentle with them. Next, Jesus heals a sick in Gennesaret. Chapter 7, Traditions and Commandments. And Jesus gets a little aggressive with his speech here with the religious leaders because he is confronting them. Next, what defiles a person? The Syrophoenician woman's faith. Jesus heals a deaf man. Chapter 8, Jesus feeds the 4,000. The Pharisees demand a sign. There's a little bit, once again, of an intensity between Jesus and the religious leaders. Next, the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. And here there is, there is definitely an aggressive rebuke of Peter by Jesus. Chapter 9, the transfiguration. Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. Jesus again foretells death and resurrection. Who is the greatest? There's a rebuke again by Jesus. Anyone not against us is for us. And here the teaching by Jesus is intense. Temptation to sin. 
teaching about divorce. Chapter 10. Let the children come to me. The rich young man. We see a particular tenderness with Jesus here towards this man. Next, Jesus foretells his death a third time. The request of James and John. Pretty intense situation, but it's not necessarily because of Jesus. Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus. Chapter 11, the triumphal entry. And next, something pretty aggressive by Jesus. Jesus curses the fig tree. And then that brings us here to Jesus cleanses the temple. So as we just took a brief survey of Mark up to where we are now, the large majority of Jesus' actions recorded by Mark were not violent or any form of aggressive. That might have felt tedious, but I wanted you to put your eyeballs in all those paragraphs, and I want you to feel that impact that the large majority of Jesus' actions in his first coming were not violent. Now, Jesus sometimes used aggressive speech. I also want to draw your attention to, as we're talking about the large majority of Jesus' actions at his first coming, I want to clear up something that might be a little confusing for those of you who have spent some time reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that there are two temple cleansings. The one recorded here in Mark chapter 11, and all of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that is the temple cleansing that happens during the Holy Week. There was another one recorded in John chapter 2, and that was done at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So as far as I know, the only physically violent actions by Jesus were that first temple cleansing in John chapter 2, and then this temple cleansing here in the Holy Week. So back to Mark eleven fifteen, Here, this temple sale of and this money exchange and the sale of these animals for the sacrificial system was a perversion. It also was obstructing the Gentiles, the court of the Gentiles, for them to be able to worship God properly. As I mentioned earlier, this was a large area. This was hard for any one person to oppose and topple this operation. This was a large-scale, big operation that was sanctioned by the religious leaders. It was a large-scale corruption going on among God's people. So I want to draw a conclusion here. In between the first coming of Jesus Christ, which happened when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and the second coming of Jesus Christ, sometime yet in the future, there will be large-scale corruption. It will always be present. And you should not expect to overcome that corruption. And here's the part you really need to think about. Jesus himself did not overcome 
that corruption. Do you hear me there? Jesus, when he was violent with his actions there in the temple and turned over tables and flipped over chairs and drove people out, he did not overcome that spiritual corruption. Even though it was impressive, it was a display that no other man would have attempted because it was a huge area and it was allowed by the leadership. But Jesus did not apply a permanent solution there. It was temporary. Why was it temporary? Because just a few days later, Jesus was murdered. And they continued on with their actions. So what then is the value of Jesus' violent actions? This is your next two blanks. What then is the value of Jesus' violent actions? And how do they, and here's the final phrase, help me today? What then is the value of Jesus' violent actions and how do they help me today? As we look to even Jesus himself there at his first coming, he did this impressive display of, of resisting, throwing over tables and bringing the whole operation to a halt. Whether it was a few hours or a few days until he was murdered and then they reset up everything again and went on as normal, we don't know, but it was temporary and we consider ourselves, we aren't able to overcome spiritual corruption. Jesus did not overcome it at his first coming. So what's the value of that? Why did Jesus do that? What was the point? And number two, Jesus' actions. First blank there. Jesus' actions at the temple cleansing were an you can use two different words here, whichever you prefer. Installment or preview. So Jesus' actions at the temple cleansing were a, an installment or a preview of what is to come at the second coming. First blank is actions. Second blank is either installment or preview. Last two blanks are Second coming. When Jesus returns at his second coming, which is yet in the future for us, part of his restoration that he brings to this world is going to be through violent judgment. Jesus temporary, temporarily cleansed the temple as a demonstration of of his authority, and that he does oppose and stand up to spiritual corruption. He didn't just ignore it. He clearly, he stood up to it. He brought it to a halt as a demonstration of his authority over the temple, but also that he was not in favor. He did not condone their corruption. This was a loud statement by Jesus. It was a shocking display that no one else dared to do. But then he was murdered a few days later. And when Jesus comes at the second coming, 
it will have, he will bring full judgment as a part of his restoration plan. Seems kind of antithetical, contradictory, that part of restoration is judgment. But not everything will be brought to full wholeness. Some things will be brought to eternal judgment. And through that, this world will be restored. So I want to briefly look at the second coming, because I want to bring this into focus. Let's look just a couple chapters later into Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, verse 24. Mark 13, 24, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 and verse 62. And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation Chapter 19, this is at the end of what we would call the tribulation. And we see the second coming of Jesus initiate. It has begun at this point. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Jesus is coming, the clouds of power and glory. Verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. There is a righteous violence described here. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his hand are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Nations, folks. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Conclusion here is Jesus Christ will not and has never in the past executed violence sinfully. There is such a thing as righteous violence. There is a time and place And in this righteous violence at Jesus' second coming, he will subdue, conquer, crush the kingdom of darkness once and for all.
So we see what Jesus did at his first coming, although it was an exception. Then we saw at his second coming the full righteous violence that will occur. There will be other things that will occur, but in the second coming there will be righteous violence. So let's go back to ourselves here. So, this is on your handout. What sort of action, or actions actually, so what, are, what sort of actions are Christians supposed to engage in while they wait for Jesus to return? What sort of actions are Christians supposed to engage in while they wait for Jesus to return? And then, number three, Christians are given clear directions. Clear directions on how to be active in the cause of Christ during their wait for the second coming. Second coming. But this does not include violence. Violence. Christians are given clear directions on how to be active in the cause of Christ during their wait for the second coming. But this does not include violence. We need to be very careful on justifying any sort of aggression. Whether that's verbal aggression or in our actions that we perform. As we consider Jesus and what he did in Mark chapter 11... And then what we see will happen at the second coming. Jesus is a perfect example of righteous anger. And as we consider that, that yes, in theory, you and I can execute, show, demonstrate righteous anger. But the large majority of our actions in anger is not they are not righteous actions. It's not a righteous response. Now, the, at the heart of anger, folks, is the idea of what is right and what is wrong. Anger is a response to what we perceive is wrong or how someone has wronged us. So you're never going to disconnect the idea of righteousness from anger because we are moral beings. God is angry at sin. And so once again, you have righteousness connected with anger. You can't disconnect the two. And so every time we experience anger and respond in anger, it is over our perceived idea of what is right and what is wrong. But because of our twisted hearts, our sinful hearts, we're fallen beings, I would say that it's very rare for most of us to respond in purely righteous anger 
and respond in the right way. And so, therefore, we need to be very, very careful justifying our aggression toward others, even in the name of Christianity and the pursuit of the cause of Christ. Because there is a high probability that your aggression and perhaps even violence is tainted with sin. This is very important for us to consider in our country today. I'm going to get a little bit more specific here in a few minutes. But because we are going to hold back or we should be careful with our aggressive responses in the, in the cause of Christ or supposedly in the cause of Christ, that is going to subject us to many unfair atrocities, unfair treatment, whether in our neighborhood or neighborhoods where we live or, or our government and how it treats us or in politics or in our workplaces. You see, there is within our country a notion of if we can just get control, if we can just get the right laws into place, that we are going to be able to see the cause of Christ realized. And in the name of that, there has been an intense contest in our country where people lose sight of the clear directions that God has given them and they get caught up in an aggression that is unhealthy. Consider this, as we consider the atrocities that have been done, some of the atrocities and the unfair treatment have been done in the name of the cause of Christ. And all we have to do is look at our text today in Mark chapter 11, verse 15. Jesus, just a few days later, was murdered. His own chosen people murdered him in the name of their righteous cause. That should give us a huge pause whenever we are caught up in a cause in the name of religion that brings us to aggression and sometimes violence. To a contest against other people. Church history is littered with the church itself in the name of the cause of Christ committing violent and aggressive actions. Think of the Crusades. Think of the Roman Catholic Church in Europe. There's many, many more. My opinion is, based on principles like this, is we in our country have lost sight of our true objectives by trying to leverage a moral power that only Jesus Christ can. 
My application would be to back off aggression. Give it to God. Aggression and trying to enforce morality will never fix hearts. That's an important phrase for our country. Our aggression and our cause to enforce morality through laws, through politics, through government, it's never going to fix hearts. Look at your history books. Our country is not unique in its attempts to do that. Now, perhaps you feel and don't like the weight of my opinion here concerning our aggression and what we're trying to realize in our Christian cause here in America. But what I'm not saying and what the scriptures do not say is that we are to be inactive. Our New Testament is filled chalk filled probably on every page of our New Testament with action words of what we are to be busy about doing. But what I don't see is action words for us to be aggressive and even violent towards others. Yes, we are to contend for the faith and there's there are some strong, intense actions we are to perform and to stand strong, but as far as a purely aggressive stance towards others. I don't find that in our New Testaments. It's primarily a defensive, but standing upon our principles of what Jesus Christ has taught us and then admonishing one another to live those. Even when we're trying to deal with our own sin. Where do we get the power to deal with our own sin? Through availing ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit. The power and the strength we get to do these things comes from God. So. There's a, there's a huge chasm between what we are clearly told to do as Christians and this aggression and even violence that some folks can get caught up in. And I would just challenge you, because there's so many causes today. I, I, I get the letters in the mail. You get the letters in the mail. And they, they cite the litany of problems here, whether internationally or here in the United States, and they're calling you to a political cause in the name of the cause of Christ. And they're calling you to give your money and give your focus and give your efforts and give your passions. And so many of America's Christians get caught up when their passions get inflamed with these causes. Let me tell you, my friends, only Jesus Christ is going to be able to resolve that and deal with that when he returns. In the meantime, our Bibles, our New Testaments are filled with things that our passions should be intertwined with. And so what happens is when we get caught up in all these causes, we lose our focus. 
we lose our power. I'll give you an example. Most of us, just because we're normal people, and people know how to write good letters and do good commercials, we get caught up in a cause and, a, and, a, and we get passionate about it and we begin to talk to one another about it. We say, we got to do this and we got to see this through and make this happen. But when it comes to sharing the love of Christ, I don't meet very many people that get passionate about that. So my that's my proof. Because... We're caught up with distracting causes that we will never fully realize. And we aren't passionate about sharing the love of Christ. It's amazing how many people get passionate about their politics, but they aren't passionate about Christ. I meet a lot of people, myself included, I'm not trying to, not include myself, who could get very passionate about some cause in our country. But when it comes to being passionate about loving Christ and loving others and sharing the good news, they're not passionate about that. That is a demonstration that we have lost our way. We've lost our focus. I made a lot of application there. But now let me try to bring Matthew or Mark chapter 11 and apply it to us today. So make sure you're still in Mark chapter 11 or flip over from Revelation, get over to Mark chapter 11. You look at this violent, these violent actions that Jesus performed. And I think it's very obvious at this point that I do not believe that Christians should use violence for the cause of Christ. And they need to be very, very restrained in their aggression in the cause of Christ. And there are better things for us to focus on that are much clearer cut. So then as we look at what Jesus did here, what is the value of it? Because even what Jesus did was it was temporary and it didn't really give us a permanent solution. And so why is this temple cleansing in our Bibles? And how does it support the overall theme of the good news of Jesus Christ? How is what Jesus did in his violent actions in the temple good news about Jesus? And let me remind you here that what Jesus, when he opposed these people, this was a huge ordeal. It was insurmountable for people to oppose that and be successful. And even if Jesus was temporarily successful, Jesus was giving us a preview of his authority, his power to topple corruption, to topple injustice, to topple sin to oppose the kingdom of darkness. And so, as there are times when in this life, and I think more and more of us are feeling this, we feel like this system around us, we feel like we're losing. We feel like the kingdom of darkness is winning. And when we see 
the righteous, violent, angry actions of Jesus there in the temple cleansing in what seemed like a hopeless situation, that should be a reminder to us, it should be a comfort to us, it should be a hope to us that we have a king who will stand up, he will come, and he will bring victory. And what Jesus did there at that temple cleansing is he showed us that he is a king who executes righteous violence against corruption, against sin, against the kingdom of darkness, and he will come back someday and he will win. So the reason I believe that this is in our Bibles and how this supports the overall theme of the good news of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ does not turn a blind eye to sin and corruption, even in the most powerful religious institutions of this world. And someday he will come back, we will be with him, and he will execute righteous violence. And we will win. And we will enter with him into the new creation and enjoy the fruits of our righteous King. I encourage you to take just a few minutes and respond to that. Pray the Lord. Share your concerns with Him. Perhaps you're struggling with some of the things I say. Perhaps you feel like you don't agree. Tell those to the Lord. Be honest with the Lord. And ask Him to teach you what you need to know.